there was a, a, a pastor who was talking with a, a group of kids and he's desiring to share with them about Jesus and how you get to heaven. And he's asked all the kids, where do you wanna go? And all the kids shout out, heaven. And the pastor said, and what do you need to be to get there? And one boy yelled out, dead. <laughs> That's kind of true, but there's some exceptions as we see here today. Paul's gonna be talking about heaven and I wasn't sure if I should title this message, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door or take me down to the paradise city, you know, by guns and Moses, right? Um, <laughs> And so either one of those kind of fits here. But, but you see, Paul continues on in this theme of boasting. And, and more so, it's not boasting and bragging, but it's glory. It's glorying in that which is, is good and, and true. And at the end of chapter 11, Paul laid out the many things that he's had to endure as a, a minister of the gospel, the things that he's had to go through in his life, the many tribulations he's experienced. And yet Paul's come to realize that those tribulations can be very valuable. They're, they're serving a, a, a purpose. We read in Romans chapter five, verse one to five, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character of hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So in 2 Corinthians from chapter 10, 11 and 12, Paul's having to enter into this period of having to boast and to do so in a way because of all the false apostles that had come into the church at Corinth and how they were kind of boasting in themselves, trying to elevate themselves above Paul and, and to elevate themselves above Paul, they had to kind of tear down Paul and they had to discredit him and, and say all these things. And so Paul didn't want to get into this arena of having to boast, but he understands it's the only way that they're going to kind of relate. It's the only way that they're going to kind of understand if Paul is kind of speaking their language. And so he gets into this boasting by which he calls foolishness. But Paul, more so, isn't seeking a boast in who he is and what he's done, but more so in the Lord. And notice what we read in Romans chapter 5, as we just seen here, that Paul talks about rejoicing at the end of verse 2, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. That idea of rejoicing is that same idea of, of boasting or glorying. When he says in verse 3, not that, but we also glory in tribulations. That's the word boast. It's the same thing that Paul's doing in, in 2 Corinthians. He's boasting, but more so, he's glorying. Now, we like to glory in hope of the glory of God. We like to end that right at verse 2 and say, I can glory in the hope of all that God has for me. That I can do. But glory in tribulations? <laughs> Wait a second. No, that's too much. Now, we recognize we don't glory for tribulations. I hope nobody here is going, Lord, I just need a few more tribulations. I really get excited about that, Lord. Bring them on. We're not glorying or boasting for more tribulations, but in it, we can boast and glory. Why? Because God's doing a work in it, and Paul's recognizing all of that. He's seeing that God has a, a purpose for it. Now, chapter 11 ended with Paul being let down in a basket on the wall at Damascus. 
Paul went through one of the more humiliating ministry moments to now talk about and share one of his more exciting ministry moments. In chapter 12, we're being lifted up now to the heavenlies. Paul isn't boasting in tribulations, he's boasting now in revelations. See again, our tribulations aren't meant to put us down. They're not meant to discourage us. They're meant to lift us up to a greater, more godly perspective of what we're going through, what we're facing, and what we ultimately have in and through the Lord. They're meant to remind us that we live in a broken world and we long for eternity. Paul is going to share this perspective with us as we get into chapter 12. Again, verse one, we read this. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heavens. So like I said, Paul's struggling with having to speak this way, with having to kind of communicate in a way that's sort of elevating or boasting in himself. He knows that's not a profitable course of action to take. Now the, the New King James as I'm reading from kind of, it sounds a little bit clunky, you know, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. The ESV translates it this way. I must go on boasting though there's nothing to be gained by it. This was Paul's attitude. He goes, I, man, because of how you guys are, are talking and what these false apostles were doing among the believers of Corinth, Paul goes, I need to kind of continue on in this way though I know there's not a lot to be gained by it. But again, Paul's not seeking to elevate himself, but as we see, as we go through chapter 12, even more so he's seeking to elevate Jesus and the work that Jesus is doing, even in the midst of Paul's weakness and difficulties and tribulations he's going through, that God is doing something significantly greater in the midst of it. Again, Paul's purpose now in defending the gospel or, or, or in speaking this way is ultimately to defend the gospel that he's preached to the believers at, at Corinth because they're getting pulled into deception. They're getting pulled into lies and, and falsehoods and they're getting kind of derailed in their faith by these false apostles coming in. So Paul's having to take charge now and he's having to speak in a way because of the urgency of protecting the gospel and the faith of these Corinthian believers. Now, it's quite probable that these false apostles were passing on various visions to people in the church at Corinth. They said, well, we've received a word from the Lord for you. You know, one way to make yourself sound very spiritual is to walk up to somebody and say, I have a word from the Lord for you. It just stops people in the tracks. They're like, oh, okay, let me hear it. And we understand that the Lord can work through that way and, and speak through people and he can reveal visions. Paul's received many visions before. Even when he was ministering in Corinth, he received a vision of the Lord speaking to him saying, Paul, don't fear, don't worry. I have many people in this city. Because Corinth was a very pagan place, difficult place to minister the gospel. Paul was, I think, looking to check out and God came in a vision and, and just shared this word of encouragement. And Paul's received many visions before. But these false apostles were no doubt passing on these imposed, you know, word from the Lord and, and, and sounding spiritual. Paul says, hey, if you want to talk about visions, man, I can talk about visions. But it also reminds us how we need to be so careful when somebody comes and says, I have a word from the Lord for you. You can no doubt 
entertain that, listen to that, but you gotta always balance that with the word of God. We are told to test all things. Don't just receive what somebody's passing on to you. And this is being done so often in some circles where people are elevating themselves by saying, well, I've just received a vision. I was taken up into heaven. In fact, daily I have a vision and I'm just taken up in heaven. I'm just walking with the Lord on the streets of gold, having a conversation with him. And they're passing on all these things and people are just like going, ooh, this guy must be important. He's receiving daily, you know, uh, visitations and, and, and visiting heaven on a, on a regular basis. This guy must be spiritual. Again, we have to test all things and line it up with the word of God. But here Paul comes in and notice in, in verse two and three, Paul's going to refer to a man that's had a pretty amazing experience. Now, what's interesting is we, we look at that here. How does Paul define that? Well, he says, I know a man, right? Now we know that Paul is referring to himself because in verse seven, as we get into that next week, Paul's gonna make this all, you know, say that it, it was me. Guys, I, I was trying to, you know, make it about somebody else. He's speaking in the third person, but we know he's speaking about himself. Why was Paul trying to do that? Why was Paul speaking in the third person? I believe it's because Paul was so uncomfortable with talking about himself, with relating something that was on such a high level and about it being about him. He did not like the idea of having to boast in his own experiences. How about you? Does this, is this something that you can relate to in this? If some people have, just love to talk about themselves. Right? You can have a conversation with, with some people and you can be like 30 minutes in that conversation you've not said anything because they spend all the time talking about themselves. You try to add something and then they right away just turn it back on themselves. You all know people like that, don't you? I hope none of you are those people that do that. If so, we'll, we'll pray for you. But how we need to be just, now we need to be engaging in others and, and, and thinking about others more than ourselves. The Bible says that clearly. In Romans, in, in Philippians chapter two, how many consider others better than ourselves? And we need to be engaging in others and, and, and finding out how others are doing, not just, not just sharing everything about ourselves. There are, I understand there are times that we need to share with others things that are happening and, and going on, but be engaged with others. And, and more so, man, make those conversations about the Lord and what Jesus is doing in our lives. So Paul's seeking to kind of deflect the attention of it being about him. He says, I know a man. I know somebody that's gone through something pretty amazing. And as Paul begins to recount the story, it, it, it shares, he shares that he's a little unsure of the details. Now we know what happened 14 years ago. Perhaps it's even been 14 years since he's even shared this with anybody. It happened 14 years ago, but some believe that he hasn't even talked about this with anybody up until this point. And Paul's not sure if this is something that happened in the body or out of the body. He's not sure if he was dead or if he was alive when this happened, but here's what he knows, that he was caught up to the third heavens, to the third heaven. Now, I like that word caught up, and Paul uses that here two times. He's caught up to the third heaven. He was also caught up in verse four, he says, uh, to paradise. So use this idea of being caught up. Now what's interesting, it's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, where we read, then we who are alive and remain shall be 
caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 is of course speaking of what event? The rapture, that's right. Now I know people have different views regarding the rapture, when it happens, if it happens at all. And I don't wanna, you know, get into this majorly here today, but minorly, I would like to get into it a little bit if I can. If you're okay with that, okay, all right. Hey, thank you, thank you for that permission here. Um, and again, regardless of what you believe regarding the rapture, the, the bottom line is, are you, are you in Jesus? Is, is your faith in him, is he your blessed hope? That's what ultimately matters. But, but there's something I think for the believer here that is, is such a, a wonderful thing. Now, one reason that people kind of say, well, I, I don't believe in the rapture is they'll say, it's not found in the Bible. You can't find the word rapture in the Bible, it's not there. It's something that, that it's, it's been a, a doctrine or a you know, theory that's been added well after the Bible. But now if you take that same argument that the word rapture is not in the Bible, then you have to say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But yet we know through scripture that God communicates himself as three persons in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We know that the word Bible is not in the Bible, but we know that the Bible is real and true. We know it's speaking of the, the word of God. So though we may not have the word, we have the concept and the teaching of it in scripture. Now, Paul, he translates this idea of caught up as the, the Greek word, Harpazo, harpazo. And so that idea means to like snatch up, to kind of take by force in a sense. And it's used elsewhere in scripture like we saw in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. He's caught up into the third heaven. Now the Latin Vulgate came along, the, the Latin translation of the Bible, and it translated this Greek word uh, harpazo as raptus in the Latin, where we get our English word rapture. So this is where that idea of the rapture comes from. And Paul, we believe, experienced a premature rapture here. Now, like I said, there's been some debate over the years as to what this is uh, or when this is gonna happen. Does it, does it happen before the tribulation period that we read about in Revelation? Does it happen partway through the tribulation period or does it come after the tribulation period? Is it an actual event at all? Well. Let me break it down a little bit for you here. First of all, we need to realize that the tribulation period is a time where God is judging a Christ-rejecting world. It's the last seven weeks or group of uh, seven years, the last seven years of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. All right, 70 weeks, group of seven, 490 years, this is the last seven years now, that prophecy that's been kind of uh, on hold at the time that Christ came to this world, was crucified and resurrected. Daniel 9 talks about how it's now been set aside. And what happened after Christ died, was resurrected, Israel was set aside, blinded in part. We've entered into this age of the church right now but there's coming a time when God is going to begin to directly intervene again with the affairs of man and more specifically with the nation of Israel. That's gonna be during that tribulation period, which is a seven year period that is still to be fulfilled according to Daniel 9 in the 70 week prophecy. So we understand that this is a time when God's gonna be 
uh, executing this judgment for Christ rejecting world. It tells us some people say, well, that's gonna come, you know, partway through the tribulation or at the end, but Revelation 6, verse 16 and 17, notice what it says. They said in the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is coming, who is able to stand. This is being spoken of at the beginning of the, the tribulation period. And they're recognizing this is the wrath of the lamb that's being executed upon the world. This is in chapter six. Now what's interesting, chapters two and three, you have the churches, which many believe is a kind of a, a, a flow of, of, of church age and church history. And that chapters two and three then leads to chapter four. What has, happens in chapter four? John is told to come up here. Many believe it's a, a picture of the rapture. John is taken up and he sees the heavenly scene now through chapters four and chapter five. And then chapter six to 19 details the tribulation period. And they're recognizing right at the beginning, the wrath of the lamb has come. Now the Bible tells us that God's not gonna judge the righteous with the wicked, Genesis chapter 18. It also reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Paul says, God did not appoint us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So why would God allow the bride of Christ to be subject to this wrath? That's kind of like marital abuse right there. That's not a picture of a good, gracious, heavenly father. So we believe that the church is raptured up before this time of judgment that comes. And Paul, we believe, is experiencing kind of this idea when he talks about being caught up. Now, back in Revelation, oh, we, we talked about Revelation 4.1 already, John being told to come up here. Now, I, I say all these things and I love to just address this because it's, it's a big debate in the church. And, and again, uh, you can have different views regarding eschatology and regarding the rapture. And we can have different views and still fellowship together because these are not the, you know, the main things that we need to be worried about. But it does provide for us the blessed hope that we don't have to be walking in, in fear or worry of what's gonna come but rather we look in expectation of who is going to come. And I'm not saying that we're gonna be exempt from difficulty or trial. Paul makes that very clear for us as you read the end of chapter 11, you recognize, okay, as believers, we're not promised to make it through unscathed, but we're promised that the Lord is going to bring us through to the other side, that God is gonna be with us. See, some people say, well, I don't really, believe in the rapture, or I believe that we're gonna go through the tribulation because the Bible says in this world, you'll, you'll have tribulation. So we're gonna go through tribulation. The difference is, is that in this world, you'll have tribulation. And the tribulation in this world is a result of a Christ-rejecting fallen world. But the, the tribulation, that seven-year period of tribulation is not tribulation of the world, it's God's judgment. And God's not gonna expose his children to his judgment because that judgment has already been meted out on the cross. It's been poured out on Jesus Christ and all those that put their faith in Jesus have now been spared from that judgment. We don't need to go through judgment or we don't need to go through tribulation. Oh, we'll encounter tribulation. All those that desire to live godly, the Bible says, will suffer persecution. We know we're gonna go through that, but it's the result of a world that's in 
opposition and rebellion to God. It's not because of God. So let's understand that there because a lot of people love to kind of make the claim that, oh, well, we're gonna go through tribulation because we're told we're gonna go through tribulation. But there's a big distinction and difference between the tribulation and the tribulation of the world. So we have a blessed hope. Uh, Paul would say in Titus chapter two, verse 11 to 13, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have a blessed hope that we look to. And it's what keeps us moving forward in this day, in the, in the face of opposition, in the face of, of hardship, in the difficulties that, that we know we may encounter just as Paul encountered them. He knew that there was something far greater worth living for than just the things of this world. Now, Paul says, going back to our, our passage here, Paul says that he was caught up to the third heaven right here at the end of verse two. Now, third heaven, that sounds very interesting. It, what does that speak of? Is there, is there like levels of heaven? Is there like, you know, first level, second level, third, like, like some people get up to the third level, like the penthouse suite of heaven. And some of you, you know, are going to be in the, in the basement while I'm like up in the penthouse. Like, is that how it works? Some people think, what does this mean? No, no, some Jewish rabbis actually believe that there were these kinds of levels of heaven, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's speaking in a way and communicating in a way in this day that they would have understood. It's the way that God kind of even described in his creation. But the first heaven speaks of the atmosphere, where the clouds are, where when you're in a plane, you're flying in the first heaven. But then there's the second heaven, which speaks of the celestial beings, the stars and the planets something that an airplane is not gonna take you into, but you need more of a space shuttle. But then the third heavens goes beyond the first and the second heavens. This speaks of the, the dwelling place of God, which no uh, human made craft can take you. It's the Lord himself that ushers you into the third heavens, which is the very heavens itself. Paul will refer to it in verse four as paradise right here. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So Paul says, again, in, in verse three, as he repeats from verse two, he says in verse three, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was, again, caught up in a paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for man to utter. So Paul repeats here that whether it's in the body or out of the body, he does not know. And many try to speculate as to what it, exactly was going on with Paul, what he was exactly experiencing. And we don't know, it's hard for us to speculate. Paul doesn't even know. But we can begin to draw some connections as to maybe when this happened and the details around it, perhaps, to just have some fun and speculate. We know it happened 14 years ago, that we do know. But there was an incident that happened that you read about in Acts chapter 14, verse 19, where Paul was ministering in Lystra. And it says in Acts 14, verse 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Remember at the end of chapter 11, Paul talked about all the trials he's gone through. He says, stoned once. I mean, you barely survive a stoning. If you're stoned twice, typically it's lights out. 
So we know Paul said, man, I was stoned. And here it's referred to in Acts 14, 19. And they dragged him outside the city and left him because they thought he was already dead. And could it be that maybe Paul did die for a moment and was taken up to the third heavens, taken up to heaven itself. Maybe he was just unconscious and here it's in this time that he received this vision and, and this view of what heaven was like. It could be that's what happened. We don't know. I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but that would all fit, of course. And though Paul may not be too sure, again, how this all worked, this he does know. He was caught up into paradise. Now, again, what is paradise? It's a place that Jesus said to the man on the cross that he would enter into that day for faith in Christ. And so we read in Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. We read in Revelation of those that overcome, Revelation 2, 7, he who is near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, William Barclay wrote this about this paradise. He said this, the word paradise comes from a Persian word, which means a walled garden. When a Persian king wished to confer a very special honor on someone specially dear to him, he made him a companion of the garden and gave him the right to walk in the royal gardens with him in close companionship. In this experience, as never before and ever again, Paul had been the companion of God. Now, there's been many interpretations as to what exactly this this paradise is. Some have said it's an intermediary place between heaven and earth, that some people go there as kind of an initial check-in and they, they await their resurrected bodies by which then they go to heaven. But understand, there was no intermediary place that Paul is speaking of. Paul was speaking of heaven itself. That's why Jesus says to the Mount of the Cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because where Jesus is, that's what heaven is. It's not Jesus going to an intermediary place, going to a, a, a stopping point. It's that you're going to be with me in paradise. That's what makes heaven, heaven. It's going to be glorious, my friends. Heaven is going to be far more amazing and exciting than you can ever imagine. Now, I'm sure we've all taken time just to think about what heaven's going to be like. And you've drawn up, you know, some various views and, 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 and sort of your own kind of comprehension of what heaven's going to be like. I'm sure many of you, yeah, are you with me? I'm, come on, right? Y'all done it? All right. Okay, nobody's, that's all right. We'll move on. It's okay. But here's the thing. No matter what you've dreamt up about heaven, I firmly believe that it is going to far exceed what you can ever possibly imagine about heaven. That it is going to be far more glorious than you could possibly comprehend. Just like we read with what William Barclay said about this, you know, paradise being this walled garden. It's going to be like walking through a lush garden, a new and better garden of Eden where there's going to be trees and fruit. We're going to be eating there. We're going to be seeing beautiful colors. We're going to be experiencing smells probably never experienced and no longer smelling smells that we remember back here on earth. It's going to be glorious, guys. It's going to far exceed anything that we've ever been able to comprehend because it's a place that the Lord is preparing for us and is preparing for our new resurrected bodies that are 
no longer gonna have any limitations. Whatever we can think up of heaven is restricted by our finite minds, by not being able to understand fully the depth and the greatness of God and what he's been preparing for us. Oh, get excited about heaven, no doubt. Dream, comprehend, uh, think about it, but understand it's gonna be far greater than you could ever imagine. This 85-year-old couple that was married for 60 years, both died in a car crash. They'd been in good health the last 10 years of their lives, primarily because of the wife's insistence on healthy eating and exercise. And so when this couple reached the pearly gates, Peter took them right to their mansion that was decked out with beautiful kitchen, master bedroom with a jacuzzi in it. And they oohed and awed at their surroundings. And the husband, of course, says to Peter, how much is this gonna cost? Well, Peter replied, it's free. This is heaven. And then Peter took them out back of their place where their place backed onto an incredible championship golf course that they had golfing privileges every day. And every week that course changed to one of the great courses that were here on earth. And the man, of course, replied, well, how much are the green fees here? Peter replied, listen, this is heaven. You get to play for free. And they went over to the clubhouse and they saw the lavish buffet that was laid out with all the cuisines of the world. The man says, how much is it to eat here? And Peter again, exasperated, says, don't you get it? This is heaven, it's all free. Well, the man says, where are the, the low fat and low cholesterol tables? <laughs> Peter, of course, said, that's the best part. You can eat as much as you like and you're never gonna gain weight and you're never gonna get sick. And the man kind of walked off a little bit upset, mumbling to himself. And the wife and Peter talking and looking at each other, going, what's going on with this guy? What's gotten him all upset? And the man turned and looked at his wife and he said, this is all your fault. If it wasn't for your quinoa salads and bran muffins, we would have been here 10 years ago. <laughs> See, <clears throat> we should be longing for heaven. We should be longing for heaven. So don't short circuit God's plan and try to get there early, but <laughs> heaven should be exciting us to the point where it's causing the problems of this world to no longer bother us and hinder us. Now, ultimately, heaven is gonna be glorious not because of what you see or experience, but ultimately because you're gonna be with Jesus. That's what's gonna make heaven wonderful. And if you're not caught up with Jesus today, if you're not so in love with Jesus today to where you're going, and I, and I hear people talk like this sometimes and it grieves my heart, where they're going, yeah, you know what? I, I'm not ready to go to heaven. I'm not ready, I, I've got too much living to do. I got too many things I want to experience here. Well, you're missing it. And might I say, and I don't want to say this condemningly or, or in, a, in a judging manner, but are you enamored with and, and caught up with Jesus today? Because if Jesus is truly your life, then you don't, you're not worried about having more living to do. You're not worried about experiencing things in this world. You're just going, Jesus, I can't wait to be with you face to face for all of eternity. That's what I'm excited about. That's what I'm longing for. 
And when you're longing for those things, you're not worried about the difficulties, the trials that you might go through in this world. In fact, this is what continued to move Paul. Because here's a man that's seen it and experienced it. He's been on one side of the spectrum where he's gone through probably more trials than any of us could ever possibly experience. And yet he's seen what's awaiting him. And it, and it caused him to move on by which he would say, like we shared last week in Acts 20 verse 24, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. I might just finish my race and, and, and the work that the Lord has for me. Paul says, I don't care what's facing me in front of me because I know what's ultimately awaiting me. This is why he could say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, where, where he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory. Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul says, every trial that I might face, it's a light affliction. It's small, it's minor. Why? Because in comparison to what is awaiting us, and Paul could say this authoritatively because he's seen it and experienced it. He says, it is far going to exceed whatever I might encounter on earth. But it costs him to say, man, I'm not living for this world. None of these things move me, bother me. They don't upset me any longer because I know it's all gonna be worth it. He says, I can take all the sufferings of this world and put it on one side of the scale. And when he says it's not worthy to be compared, that word worthy is this word uh, axiom, I believe in the Greek. It's that idea of like a, uh, an actual scale. It's uh, taking all the, the weight of suffering, he says, and put on the other side, the glory which shall be revealed in us, and the scales tip in favor every time of what is awaiting us in heaven. Paul says, I can take all of this because I know what's awaiting me. And it keeps me moving forward with joy, with excitement, without being bothered, depressed, discouraged. Oh, it's all gonna be worth it. This is Paul's attitude. That's why we need to have a right view of heaven and eternity and have that eternal perspective in how we're living today, my friends. Now, what's remarkable is as amazing as heaven is gonna be, Paul doesn't share the physical aspects of what he's seen. Rather, he highlights the things he's heard. I'm sure Paul couldn't even entertain trying to describe the things he saw in heaven. That'd be like, like trying to explain the glory of God's creation to a man that's born blind. Where do you start? What kind of reference point do you use? It's so hard. And then it causes me to be a little leery of those who claim to have been taken up to heaven on regular excursions and again, just having these regular conversations with God in heaven. Because Paul says, I can't even do it justice. Again, we got to be so careful and test everything. Paul perhaps took 14 years to even share this, and he did so, so reservedly, trying to refer to it as somebody else, not even him. <laughs> and when he does bring it up, all you get is, guys, I couldn't even attempt to tell you about it. I'm sure the guy's like, Paul, just try. This is exciting. You're taking him to heaven, give us something, throw us a bone here. But he's just like, I can't even attempt to do so. 
it's exciting to think about what heaven is going to look like, but imagine just what it's going to sound like. Because the words were inexpressible in the sense that they were too sacred to be uttered and therefore not for publication. G. Campbell Morgan said, there are some who seem eager to talk of visions and revelations which they have had. The question is as to whether such eagerness is not proof that the visions and revelations are not of the Lord. When they are granted, and they certainly are granted to the servants of God under certain circumstances, they produce a reverent reticence. They are too solemn, too overwhelming to be lightly described or discussed, but the effect of them will be apparent in all life and service. Paul says there in verse four, I heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for man to utter. Perhaps he just couldn't do it justice. Perhaps it was something that was given to him by the Lord that was for Paul alone, that was not to be passed on. But imagine just what we're gonna be witnessing in heaven because revelation does begin to lift the veil a little bit and, and allow us to see some glimpses in as John was again taken up to heaven. And just the singing that's going on, Revelation 4, 8 says the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest here at night, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, that's amazing when you hear a room like this singing out, holy, holy, holy. That's enough to send, you know, goosebumps up just to hear that and, and you get excited. But imagine four living creatures with six wings and eyes all around, and you're going, oh my goodness. And they're singing out with out stopping day and night, they do not rest, saying, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. And then you've got in Revelation 5, verses 9 to 13, again, singing and songs that are going on, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Listen, who's singing that song in heaven? You've redeemed us? To God by your blood? Do angels sing that song? Angels haven't been redeemed by the cross of Jesus. That's the church, my friends. The church is in heaven before John is taken up to heaven before he begins to see what's happening during the tribulation. And the church is present in heaven at that time, singing in Revelation 5. And then, notice this in Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I don't even know what that number is. But John's just like, just, it's, it's like infinite. And they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Heaven is going to sound incredible with the worship that's going on around the throne and to the one that is deserving of all praise. Paul says, man, I heard inexpressible words, not lawful for man to utter, whether that was a word that the Lord gave to Paul personally or just the, the, the sound of worship in heaven. Paul says, I, I, I can't do it justice. You just gotta experience this for yourself. 
And that's kind of what Paul is desiring, that these believers in Corinth would experience all that God has for them. He doesn't want them to be sidetracked by these false apostles coming. And that's why Paul is having to speak in this way that he doesn't want to, to boast, but saying, guys, let me boast in something that's not about me, but more so about what God has prepared for us. Because Paul has tasted of the future glory. And he knows that whatever temporal bitterness that this life has to offer up is no reason to give up. No reason to pack it in. How we need to keep moving forward. And Paul would say in, in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Because we need to daily be reminded that you're not living for this world. Now, Randy Alcorn says in his book, Heaven, our minds are so much set on earth that we are unaccustomed to heavenly thinking. So we must work at it. Perhaps you're afraid of becoming so heavenly minded you have no earthly good. Relax, you have nothing to worry about, he writes. On the contrary, many of us are so earthly minded that we are of no heavenly or earthly good. C.S. Lewis observed, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective, ineffective in this. C.S. Lewis says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And it's so sad to see in, in much of evangelicalism, it seems today that discussions on eschatology, talking about the Lord's soon return, is just kind of dismissed because we want to just deal with today and what's going on in the world and how we can be and and trust me i'm not saying that's not a good thing to think about we need to be thinking about how we can be serving in this world and effective and and leading people to christ but what motivates us more so to do those things is an eternal perspective a heavenly view of what is to come to say i want to see people loved ones family members rescued spared and saved. I wanna see people not caught up in thinking that the world is all that. Because the Bible says that the world is not gonna get better and the world is gonna be destroyed. But the Lord has a future home prepared for us. And it's that view that motivates us now to say, I wanna be active in this world. I wanna be salt and light in this world. It's not to just redeem this world, but it's to redeem a people out of this world and showing that there is a, a better world to come. That's the view we're to have. So Paul says in verse five, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. See, Paul again says, listen, a person that's had that kind of experience of going to heaven, oh man, I'll boast in that guy any day. I would love to talk about that. But because it's him, it's like, man, I'm really struggling to do so. He says, I would 
rather talk about my infirmities, my sicknesses, my weaknesses, my, my struggles. I'd rather talk about those things because Paul recognizes that when I talk about those things, it only causes me to boast in the Lord's strength and the Lord's goodness and the Lord's might in and through that. See, Paul has so emptied himself of self. He says, I'm not living for my life and my comfort. I'm not living for this world. He's recognizing it's not about me. I want to live to glorify Jesus. And if the Lord takes me through tribulations and trials and, and, and difficulties, then it's going to be an opportunity to glory more in who the Lord is and what he does in and through it. Paul says in verse six, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. See, Paul's not looking to use this heavenly encounter to win over an audience. He didn't brag about his privileged experience. He would rather prove through his scars rather than his stars that he was sincere in his ministry and that God was the power behind all that he did. I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Paul says, I don't want anybody to think more of me. I want people to think more of Jesus. I don't want people to look at my life and all that I've been through and not go, wow, Paul, you're so awesome. He goes, I want people to look at my life and go, wow, the God you serve is awesome. How do you get through this? How do you manage? How do you have such joy in the midst of all these things? It's the Lord. He said, I have a blessed hope. I'm excited for all that God's done and all that he continues to do and all that he has prepared for me. So Paul says, I'm not going to boast. I don't want to be foolish about that. I don't want anybody to look at me and think more of me. I want them to think more of God. That needs to be our boast today. How about you? What can you boast in today? Worship team, I'm going to have you come up. We're going to close with a song. What can you boast of today in the Lord? Well, first of all, I think you can boast in the fact that he saved you despite your wretchedness. See, if your response is, well, Listen, I've always believed. I've always just lived a really godly life. Then what are you boasting in? It's not in what the Lord has done. It's in how good you've been. Boast rather in the fact that no matter how good you are, you were a sinner, guilty, a wretch that was saved simply by the grace of Jesus Christ who saved you, rescued you, delivered your soul. You can boast of the fact that you have a future and a hope now. See, we deserved hell. I certainly don't deserve to have a, a hope of heaven. I deserve to be in hell because I was a guilty sinner. But Jesus in his grace has granted me the gift of eternal life and has given me a heavenly home and a heavenly hope. You can boast of the fact that though you blow it day after day and you fall short, God's never given up on you. You see, if our Christian life was like a job that you had to check into, you know, you, you, you stamp your, your time card, you do your, your business, you're trying to please the boss. If my Christian life was like that, I would have been fired long ago. God would have been like, listen, you know what? You're just making too many mistakes. You're costing the company. This just isn't working, man. I'm gonna have to let you go. That's 
what would be my fate. But God is patient and he's gracious and he doesn't toss me aside. He doesn't give up on you. He carries us on. He saved you by his grace and he continues to carry you by his grace. Are you boasting alone in the things that God has done for you? Make him your boast today. Rejoice in him. Glory in what God does, even in the midst of your weaknesses and tribulations. Glory in the fact that God is at work and we still have a blessed hope in him because he remains faithful. So let's pray. And we're gonna sing a song. And if you've got kids in children's ministry, I just encourage you, if you can, slip out while we sing this song and go pick up your kids. We can all stand right now. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you for your word and the truth of it here today. And God, we wanna be those that are boasting and glorying in you. And we thank you that we have much reason to. You saved us. You've given us as a free gift, eternal life. We have a blessed hope and Lord, May we not ever think that we're deserving of it, but that we've just received it by your grace, which causes all the more to boast in you. And if you're here today, listening online or in the building with us, and you do not have that blessed hope, you don't know where you're going when you die, I wanna encourage you and let you know that that can be answered today with an assurance. Because God, sent his son in this world to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin it's your sin that keeps you separated from god it's your sin that sentences you to hell it's where every one of us deserve to be but jesus in his grace died on a cross he took the judgment of god that you and i deserve and he took it upon himself and he paid the penalty for your sin that you could now be brought into a right standing with god by simply admitting your sin and putting your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're listening today and you're wondering, how can I make it to heaven? It's by putting your trust in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. As the one that forgives you of your sin and makes you righteous now. It's not by being a good person, by being a good life. It's not by trying to live holy. It's by putting on Jesus Christ and his righteousness that he provides for you freely by believing in him. Would you do that today? If you have not done that and you don't have an assurance of where you're going when you die, that can be answered right now by turning to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm in need of forgiveness. Thank you that you died on a cross to forgive me of my sin. I put my trust in you that I can be saved and forgiven and be given that free gift of eternal life.